0: Bibles to Psalm 11. So if you have uh, your copy of the scriptures, please would you turn there? It's been all Psalms today. We were in Psalm 18 this morning. Our children's message this evening was uh, from the Psalms, but now we're turning to Psalm 11. And uh, you'll notice the inscription at the top of this psalm says, To the chief musician, a psalm of David. It says, In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, Flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow on the string, that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyelids his eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup for the lord is righteous he loves righteousness his countenance beholds the upright please keep your bible open there now i don't know how you would feel if you were driving home from work one day and you saw road traffic signs that were meant to warn you of dangers ahead and one said warning zombies ahead well, that's what happened in the, in the state of Austin, Texas uh, in America back in the 1990s. Some computer hacker got inside the, uh, the, the what would be the equivalent of the council uh, computers and he started sending out random messages over the road highway signs that were supposed to warn people of things on the road. Now, that one you might have thought was tongue-in-cheek, but if you'd seen this one, you might have... Uh, been a little bit more concerned it's harder to see but it says nuclear fallout ahead now would you carry on with your journey or would you do a Mm u-turn interesting thing that isn't it another one said run for the cold climates and then a third one said a fourth one said the end is near Mm -hmm. now they never actually caught the person who did that but they said if they ever did then he would be indicted and uh He's uh, uh, caused a lot of people a lot of concern because when people saw those signs, some people didn't know whether to take them seriously or not. What did that mean? But you know what? When we see the signs in the world today, we have to say the world is full of frightening messages, isn't it? There was a, a newspaper cartoon some time ago that had a picture of the four horsemen of the apocalypse riding. And uh, three of them were riding side by side. And it said floods, war and famine underneath, which is not quite what the, the, the four are in, in the book of Revelation. But uh, the caption ended with a photo finish at the end. In other words, saying all these things are rushing on the world at this time today and the world is full of scary news I think it was the Bible teacher Tim LaHaye who told that when he was a young boy he had a newspaper round and he took the newspaper to one gentleman who was in the yard got off his bike and took it up to him and the man opened it rolled it back up and said if you haven't got anything yet better to bring me don't come at all and gave it back to him the world is full of very negative news. Somebody has said the letters of the word news is stands for nothing ever worth seeing. And uh, uh, perhaps that's how you feel when you turn on the television. But you know, the feeling that we have like that is not new, uh, because David was experiencing something like that too. And somebody has said, in times like this, it's helpful to remember, there's always been times like this. And David in the Psalms certainly was concerned about the days in which he was living in. Now, we don't know exactly when this psalm was written. There's no clues given in this psalm as to the period of David's life that this was written from. But many people believe it was written at the time when David was in exile from Saul and keeping away from Saul, who was the king at the time before him. And uh, it was a psalm that David wrote for difficult times. And in this psalm, David points out three things. He said, in times like this, we have great concerns in verses 1 to 3. But we also have great confidence Mm -hmm. in verses 4 and 5. Sorry, 4 to 6. And we have great consolation in verse 7. And those are things that I want us to look at This evening from this psalm so we can get the benefit for the times that we're living in as well, because uh, we need to have a biblical anchor for the days in which we're living in. So first of all, I want to draw your attention to the fact that we have great concerns in times like this and verses one to three illustrate some of the concerns that David Was feeling. And I want to say tonight, friends, if a Christian is concerned, it's not because he is anxious or foolish or unwise. It's probably because he's got his eyes open. Uh, The people who are concerned are the people who know the most and the people who care the most. And that often causes people to uh, take the world situation in which we are facing very seriously and David was one of those Christians and David could see three great dangers in his day in his situation and I think they have tremendous parallels for us in ours and I'm gonna to have to apologize I haven't been able to put all the subheadings in in Farsi I, I do apologize for that uh, but David could uh, see three great dangers in his day he said there were those who tempt us in verse one He said, in the Lord, I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? Now, David was trusting in the Lord and walking with the Lord. But some people were saying to him, you know, you need to get away from here. You're in trouble. You you need to run away and flee as far as you can like a bird to your mountain. And we were talking this morning about the mountain that David went to. In Psalm 18, uh, the word that's used for fortress in in, uh, Psalm 18 is the word Masada. And in the book of uh, 1 Samuel, David went to a place called the stronghold. And again, it's the word from which we get Masada, that great fortress uh, that, that was built up in the days of Herod, but which... Actually, David had as his stronghold and his hideout in the book of Samuel. And uh, when he was there, the prophet Gad came to see him and told him uh, to come away from there. But these people are saying, no, no, flee away back to your mountain. And they're encouraging David to flee when he needs to stand. And, you know, we live in a world today where people are trying to tempt us to run away, aren't we? And uh, it is a, a, a concern. There's a, many people like Pilgrim's Progress character Timorous, who uh, was running the other way when Christian was on his journey to this heavenly city. And he warned Christian of the danger and said, it's no good, go back. And there, there are many people who try to tempt us to do a U-turn in the Christian life and go back and say, you shouldn't go on. But you know what? A Christian who walks in faith in the Lord won't actually go back on his walk with the Lord. It's interesting that people who were tempted with this in the Bible who stood their ground. You remember Nehemiah, when Nehemiah was building the walls of Jerusalem and uh, people came to him secretly and told him, you know, Sanballat is going to kill you. And uh, they say, what you need to do is you need to go and hide in the temple. And in Nehemiah 6 verse 11, Nehemiah said, should such a man as I flee, he stood his ground. He knew it wasn't right for him in that situation to flee. We see an ever great illustration of that with the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 13 in verse 31. It says, on that very, same, on that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, get out and depart from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go tell that fox Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Jesus wasn't going to run away. He was going to run on to the cross where he was going to die for our sins. And that's an example for us to follow. Is somebody tempting you, dear Christian friend, in these difficult days, by either their example or their words, to turn away from following the Lord, then be on guard against that temptation. Those temptations can start to nag. Somebody said temptation is a bit like the countdown on the launch pad at NASA. You know, sometimes like this uh, recent mission to space, the Artemis mission to, to the moon that they had, they had to cancel the, the, uh, the, the countdown and the, the spaceship didn't launch. And then they did it again and it didn't launch. But eventually it did. Somebody said temptation can be like that. Once you start entertaining it, It's not long before the countdown comes to an end and it launches into sin. So put that away from you if somebody is saying that to you. Don't go on with the Lord. If some person in the youth group or uh, in school or college or university or elsewhere in life is tempting you, then uh, don't listen to them and separate yourself from the temptation The one time it is right to flee, it says 2 Timothy 2.22, is to flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace, along with all those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Flee temptation, but don't flee following the Lord. But there was other great concerns. There are those who target us as well. Did you see this in verse 2? David says, for look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. And uh, David has a picture here of, uh, uh, of somebody threatening him for assassination. And the wicked have their bow bent, ready. And the word for a bow being bent here is a very strong word. It means being bent to the highest, most powerful amount that you can pull it. It's actually the, what a, a, a bowman does when he's stringing his bow. He stands on the midsection and pulls up the two ends. So he can pull that string on the end. It's as tight as it will go. And they're saying that they've pulled their, their, bow, their arrow back and they've got you in their sights. And you're, David, you're in trouble. They're, they're coming for you. And certainly Saul did have men like Dueg the Edomite who were hunting down David and his men. And the wicked bend their bow and they make ready their arrow on their string that they may shoot secretly like a sniper at the upright in heart. And it's interesting, the word wicked there is the Hebrew word rasha. And I couldn't help thinking... How doesn't half sound an awful like, lot like Russia. <laughs> and, you know, today in our day and age, you know, these are the, the dangers we're in, aren't we? Aren't, aren't we? You know, there are wicked who have their bows bent, ready to fire. And they may not be bows and arrows anymore. They may be missiles. <laughs> they may be things like this. And it's a, it's a concerning thing, isn't it? You watch the news and you think, what is going to happen? We hear about how uh, certain countries in the Middle East are preparing nuclear material to make weapons to fire at Israel. And we think, you know, how long, Lord, uh, before this turns into a serious situation? There are those who target us, and that should cause us great concern. In fact, I I have a theory on this. I can't prove it to you, but I have a theory that this psalm was really written from David's point of view, but with special application for those in the last days. Because in the last days, there is a man coming in the Bible who has a bow in his hand in Revelation chapter six. His name is the Antichrist. And uh, covertly, he is going to be uh, uh, attacking those who are the Lord's people, before then he turns and takes them out uh, publicly. It's a very serious situation in the book of Revelation that is prophesied there. So that's another great concern that Christians take seriously. And uh, again, as I say, you know, if, if you don't take it seriously, then perhaps uh, you're not really aware of all the things that are happening in, in the news in this sort of situation. But then there are also those who trouble us in verse 3. And he says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Here's David wanting to build the kingdom that God has set him up as king to, to build or brought him forward to uh, be as king. And there are those who are destroying the foundations. And in David's life, he had to contend not only at one end with Saul, but later on with Absalom, who was trying to throw him off his own throne, his own son. And David knew if he fell, it would be the foundations of the kingdom that would be destroyed. And you know what? That's what it's like in our day and age as well. There are those who are trying to destroy the foundations of, of our society. And they bring in false teachings that trouble the church and trouble the world. We have in the church those who deny creation. Uh, literal creation in six days and they try to bring evolutionary teaching in. You know, that's breaking up the very foundation of the Bible in the very first chapter of the Bible. We have those who deny the, the cardinal doctrines of the Bible, like the resurrection, the virgin birth, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. These people are abounding. And, uh, and, uh, and their danger, uh, the danger of their damage is that That if, if you destroy the foundations of the church, then how can you go on building and teaching people the gospel if none of it's true? But we also have those in society who are doing this as well. And the Lord Jesus said in that same chapter where he healed the blind man, he said that we should work now because we have light. But night is coming when no one can work. And I can't help thinking it's getting very dark, you know, friends in the world. And the foundations of the world are being destroyed. I've been reading a book by um, Erwin Lutzer. And uh, in that book, he tells the story how one of his church members, after a service at their church, a Moody Memorial Church on Sunday, went to a park in the north part uh, of the city far away from the church. And uh, they took their family for a walk in the park after the service And an elderly lady was sat on the bench next to her friend. And when she saw this this, this group go by, one turned to the other and said, look, a family. Now you think about that. That would have been a joke once upon a time. But today, a normal family is something that's shocking, isn't it? Because we're living in day and age today where people are trying to destroy the family by uh, false teachings that say the family is made up in all sorts of different ways other than the way God instituted in the book of Genesis. With one man and one woman uh, and them raising their, their children. And, uh, you know, it's there, foundations like this that are being destroyed, the foundations of family life, the foundations of, of, of our society in terms of our, our, our legal system are being destroyed. I, I don't know if you're very conscious of this. I'm very conscious of this when I listen to the media. Uh, and I think to myself an awful lot, you know, you don't know the danger, the damage you're doing by reporting some of these things the way you are. And it seems that they can't wait today to get hold of any story to do with anything to do with a policeman who has done something wrong. Now, we've had some very disturbing stories of murderers and so on in the police force. And I'm not here to say every policeman is a saint, but I think whenever they're highlighting every story they can find about policemen on the news, and it's like when you know, they sent a naughty text message or something, you know, you know this person's got to be thrown out. What they're doing is undermining the police. If you lose faith in the police, what do you have then? You have anarchy in a society. And it's like there are forces at work. Do you remember even the queen said that once, didn't she, about the, the secret powers? And she said that uh, to that, that man, was it Mr. Burrell? Um, he, he said that the queen had warned him of the powers that were at work to try and destroy the monarchy in our land. And uh, uh, there's, there are forces at work to try and destroy the foundations. And like David says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? I mean, remember Patrick Sudeo telling this story of uh, a man in Australia who came back to his house once from uh, an overseas visit. And he opened the front door of his house and his whole house just collapsed in a heap, it just went down the ground. It was a shocking event that happened. Do you know what that happened? Termites had eaten underneath his house. And the moment he moved the door, there was movement and that caused the whole thing to fall down. The foundations had been destroyed. What, what could he do with that house then? It was, it was ruined and lost. And he applied that to what's happening in the world today. And you know, these are great concerns to us, aren't they? When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And uh, we live in a day and age where there are great concerns. And Christians who take this seriously, they're not whiners, they're watchers, they're concerned people. They're people like Nehemiah who get these situations and go to God in prayer about the burnt down walls of Jerusalem. Say, oh God, oh God, forgive us for what has happened In our world, what we have done wrong. But we're not people who are lost, because whilst we're people with great concerns, we are also people who have great confidence. And that's what verses 4 to 6 actually brings out. And, uh, you know, we have great confidence in our God. Matthew Henry said an interesting thing. He said, when a wind blows against a tree, it causes its trees to, the trees to push their roots down deeper. And if that's true, that's what trees do, then that's a picture of what David is doing here. He's saying things are shaking in our world. We have great and serious things happening, but we have greater reason to put our roots down into God. And he lists a number of things here. And they are amazing things uh, about the Lord here. And it just reminds us of the fact that nothing is impossible with God, even in a terrible situation and society like the world we're living in. You, let me just show you a picture, okay? This lady, her name is Betty Lou Oliver, and she lived in the 1940s. I think it was in 1944. And on the same day, get this, I mean talk about one bad day, I'd put that day on my calendar and never get out of bed again. But on the same day she survived a plane crash and then she was in an elevator, or lift as we call it, we're just raised differently. (laughs) But uh, she was in an elevator that fell 1,000 feet on the same day. And she survived both. You think what? A, I'd never get out of bed on that day. Again. <laughs> but you know what? Seriously, what that tells us, you know, is God. Even in the worst situations, has the power, doesn't He? to help and preserve and this is where david's confidence is in he's in the lord and that's who he turns to and look what he says about the lord in this passage he says the lord is the lord reigns in verse four he said the lord is in his holy temple the lord's throne is in heaven now presuming that david is writing this uh well Uh, Well, he was writing this before Solomon. So yet the temple had not yet been built in Jerusalem. So when David is saying the Lord's in his temple, which temple is he thinking of? The temple in heaven. And if you read in the Bible very carefully, especially in the book of Revelation, you'll find heaven is laid out like a temple. This temple, this heaven now. In the new creation, where there's the new heavens and the new earth at the end of the Bible, there's no more temple, for the Lord is the temple. But the one that there is now is like a temple. And we have all the furniture of the temple in the heavens. We see the the glassy sea, we see the menorah, we see the angel approaching, the altar of incense, all these things in the book of Revelation. And the Lord is in his temple. Remember, God said to Moses, you're to make on earth a copy of what you see in the mountain what i've shown you in heaven and uh, god's heaven is like a temple and the point is this the lord is on the throne in heaven in his temple and he reigns over the affairs of men and you know what that's really good news that's really good news in 1944 in uh in China, the Japanese invaded a place where there was a little missionary camp there and they gathered up the missionary school and the boys and girls and the, the missionary leaders and they marched them off to be uh, kept under surveillance and in a camp. And as they went, one of the children started to sing a song that became the anthem for the next three years for those children. It said this, God is still on the throne and he will remember his own. Though trials may press us and burdens distress us, he will never leave us alone. And as they were marching along, that's what they sang. And that's what the psalmist is saying too. We have great confidence despite our great concerns because the Lord is still on the throne. Dear friend, never forget that. You know, even the book of Revelation, before it reveals the terrible things that are going to happen in the tribulation and the judgments that are coming, the Antichrist that's coming, and all these things, before we ever have that revealed, do you know what we have a vision of? In chapter 5, we have a vision of the throne room of heaven and the Lord on the throne. God is wanting us to remember that even in the worst of days, that he is still in charge and he still reigns over all. David had that as his confidence. Not only that, he realized, the Lord realizes, as in verse 4 goes on, he said, his eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. Now, what does this mean? The Lord's eyelids, eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. Well, what it means is that God sees God sees what man is doing and his eyes behold man and he can see what man is getting up to. He can see man and he can see through man. <laughs> and uh, his eyelids test the sons of man is a phrase which describes the Lord narrowing his, his vision. You know, like when you squint to see something more carefully, uh, you, you, you squint your eyes, don't you? And, and God sees what is happening on the earth and God realizes You know, that's a a great comfort, isn't it? To remember when when things happen in our world that concern us, God's eyes have seen that. God's eyes know what is happening. When you're the victim of injustice, just take comfort in the fact God saw what happened. God saw what happened. God knows the truth. When you're the victim of some other hurt or, or some slanderous word or something like that, just remember God saw and God knows. And it's a a comforting reality to have that in your life, to know that he understands and realizes the truth of every matter. But the Lord not only realizes, the Lord responds. And that's what comes out in verse 5 and 6, because he says, the Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Now here we see that the Lord responds according to, to how he sees a person standing with him. And if a person is righteous by trusting in Christ and walking with the Lord, the Lord will allow tests to come in that person's life. He will allow trials to come in that person's life. And uh, like Job, he said, you know, when he's tried me, I shall come forth as gold in Job 23.10. The Lord allows tests and difficulties because he's bringing out the best in our faith. Under difficult circumstances. But the wicked, when he sees their wickedness, and those who love violence, his soul hates that. And that's a, that's a deep thing. When you talk about someone's soul, you're talking about the deepest part of their being, aren't you? When you say, oh, I, I, I hate that with all of my soul. You're going right down to the inside part of you. And this is what it's it's saying about God hating the wickedness in the world. And God will judge that wickedness according to his anger. And look what he says in verse 6. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. What does that remind you of? I tell you, it reminds me of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis 19. And God saw the wickedness of Sodom and God's, God's soul hated it to the depth of his being. And he poured out righteous judgment on Sodom for their wickedness. And you know what, dear friends, God will do that at the end of time too. Going back to what I said about Russia. Were wicked Russia, if that is, uh, if if Russia and Russia is some way uh, etymologically linked, uh, even scripturally, then certainly this will be true when they invade Israel, according to Ezekiel 38 and 39. God will bring down fire and brimstone on them in that battle, and uh, a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. But you know, it's an interesting thing here. If you're reading this in the King James Version, you'll notice verse 6 says, Upon the wicked he will rain coals, or he will rain snares. Snares. Now, a lot of people say, Oh, snares, it must be a mistake. But no, snares. Matthew Henry says that that the word is like a noose that's set. And a noose was a trap, you know, for for snaring an animal. And... uh, it's a snare set to catch something, like the hunter, uh, and, and, and the snare is set to catch the animal for food. Well, is there anything in the Bible that says that God has set a snare in the last days? Yes. The tribulation that's going to come in the world in the seven years before Jesus Christ comes back is called in the Bible a snare. In Luke 21, the Lord Jesus said, those days will come on those people like a snare and it will catch them suddenly. And in in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it says, while they're saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly. And God in the last days will bring judgment on this world for the wickedness that we see and are concerned about. Colossians chapter 3 lists a whole load of sins, and then it says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Dear friends, that's why I want to be a Christian, (laughs) because I don't want to be under the wrath of God. I want to be under God's mercy. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior yet, I I urge you to flee, not to the mountain, but to flee to the Lord, to turn to him and make him Your savior by trusting in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. He died so that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good. He only can open up heaven and save us by his precious blood. The final thing we see here is the great consolation we have in verse seven. And in the last verse of this Psalm, David says this, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness His countenance beholds the upright. And David finds great consolation in the Lord himself, just as he found comfort in him. And he finds consolation in the Lord's character and in the Lord's countenance, his his look. His character in the first part of the verse, we're told, is that he is righteous. Uh, I think the King James Version actually translates that by saying the righteous Lord loves righteousness. And, and that's a, a good way of putting it. And our God is a righteous God. What does that mean? Uh, theologian Louis Berkhoff, in his summary of Christian doctrine, says the righteousness of God is that perfection by which he maintains himself as the Holy One over against every violation of his holiness. So it's that perfection in God's character by which he maintains himself as the Holy One. And He is, he is... His his perfect perfect righteousness is the standard by which everything else is measured. Do you want to know what sin is? The Bible tells us in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the righteousness of God. That's what sin is. It's falling short of God's standard of righteousness. And God's righteousness is the standard of this world. And his character is is righteous. He is righteous in his person and he loves righteousness. He loves righteousness. I had a beautiful story about a rabbi who was teaching some of his disciples and he put a little uh, test to them and uh, uh, he wanted to find out how they were getting on in in their growth, in in practical holiness. And he said this, he said, now boys, he said, I want you to imagine one day you're walking along a road and you find a purse full of money. What do you do? He turned to the first boy and he said, what would you do? And he said, well, sir, I'd uh, find out who it was and give it straight back to them. It was the right answer, but the rabbi thought, do you know what? It was just a bit too slick and quick and rolled off the tongue without much thought. I'm not sure how far he really has got. He turned to the second boy and said, what would you do? He said, to be honest with you, he said, I'd keep it. Nobody's going to know. And he thought, well... He was telling the truth, but it revealed a heart that was that was greedy and wicked and unfair. He turned to the third boy and he said, "What would you do?" He said, "To be honest with you, he said, I'd be tempted to keep it, but I'd like to think I'd pray to God that He would help me to have the strength to resist the temptation, find out who it belonged to, and gave it back, give it back." And in his heart, the rabbi thought, "This boy has made the most progress." And he loved that boy because he was seeking righteousness. You know what? That's what it means. The Lord loves righteousness. And he loves righteousness in us. It's just one problem with that. I'm not righteous. You know, C.S. Lewis once said this. He said, the most terrifying statement in all the Bible is that God is good. He said, well, why is that terrifying? He said, because I'm not (laughs) I'm not and when I stand next to God every blemish will stand out you know I remember my mum saying once about how this time that she hung out her, her, her sheet her white sheet she would just done some washing and she hung her sheet out on the line and it was a, a, a snowy day and she thought this beautiful white sheet was nice and clean when she saw it against the the pure white snowfall she quickly brought it in <laughs> because it looked more gray than white against the snow and you know what? That's like our righteousness when we stand against God. It's not good enough. That's why we need the Lord to give us his righteousness. And that was the great discovery of Martin Luther in the Reformation. He discovered that the righteousness which judges us is actually the righteousness I need to flee to for mercy and ask God to clothe me with. And that's what justification is. It's when God declares the guilty righteous who put their trust in him and his righteousness is put on them to clothe them. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that an amazing thing? That we can wear the righteousness of God and go into heaven. And I find it a comfort to think of those words of that hymn of August Top Lady. And I repeat them regularly because I want you to learn them and know them as well for your comfort if you're a Christian. If you're clothed in the righteousness of God, God doesn't see your sin. I hear the accuser roar of ills that I have done. I know them well and a thousand more Jehovah findeth none. That's what it means to be made righteous by God. That's the gospel. They say, John, if that's true, if I can be made righteous, that's, that's good news. That's right, it is good news. That's why we call it the gospel. And you can be made righteous today if you trust in Jesus Christ. That's his character. And his countenance is that he, his countenance beholds the upright. He looks on them. Do you remember we were talking about the the high priestly blessing when the the priest lifted his hands up on his rail at the end of the service at the synagogue or at the temple and he would say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. What does that mean? The Lord will look on us with favor and grace. What, what What a consolation that is in this wicked world that we're living in. So dear friends, when we think about the times like we're in, they are terrible times. We have great concerns. We're not rubbishing what's going on in the news. We are deeply concerned. And if you want a bad night's sleep, read the British church newspaper before you go to bed. You'll see what's going on in the world and it will take your it'll just disturb you so much what's going on in the world and in the church. We have great concerns, but we have great confidence. We have a God who is on the throne, who reigns, who realises and will respond. And we have consolation in his righteous character and countenance. And what can I say to you as I bring this message to a close for days like this? I'd like you just to go back to the very opening line again and read that with me. In the Lord... I put my trust. You know, in the Hebrew, that literally means in the Lord, I take refuge. I flee to him. And if you've yet to do that, I plead with you to do that tonight. Flee to the Lord. Put your trust in him, in his saving work through Jesus Christ. And you will be blessed to face these difficult days that we're in.